we can't afford not to do this for very clear reasons that we won't have a workforce if we don't do it. Good morning, welcome to the BMJ Nuffield Trust Roundtable on how can we enable truly flexible working for the NHS workforce of the future and of today, I hope, as well. So I'm Cameron Abbas, the Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, and we've got uh, a great panel here with us. I'll ask them to introduce themselves in a minute, but just to kind of set the scene, as demand grows uh, for healthcare. We're all living and breathing that. Uh, the NHS needs more workers to meet that demand. And yet the number of workers leaving the NHS, we all know, uh, is increasing. Uh, and many of those people are leaving because there's a desire for a better work-life balance, understandably. Uh, and that may well be the biggest single reason for people leaving the NHS uh, at the moment. So why is the NHS so intolerant uh, towards flexible working in many ways it's inflexible working and what can be done to enable truly flexible working for the workforce of today tomorrow and the more distant future so to our panel we have with us i'll ask you to introduce yourselves uh, rachel hutchings hi everyone um yeah i'm rachel i'm a fellow at the nuffield trust and was one of the authors of the report um future proof exploring the impact of parental and caring responsibilities on surgical careers thank you uh farzana hussein oh hi everybody i'm farzana hussein gp in uh new in east london thea stein hi i'm thea stein i'm chief executive of leeds community healthcare trust and a trustee of the nuffield trust and sarah sweeney Hello, um, I'm Sarah Sweeney. I'm Interim Chief Executive of National Voices. We're a coalition of over 200 health and care charities uh, working to make what matters to people matter in health and care. So Rachel, to you first. I mean, you, you just published a report on the impact of uh, parental and caring responsibilities on surgical careers. It's in this week's BMJ, hot off the presses. Could you tell us what you found in your report and uh, what the impact is on individuals and the system? Uh, and uh, I mean, I guess the topic of the moment, how does that relate to retention? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we looked at specifically the impact of parental and caring responsibilities on a number of different aspects of surgical careers. So um, the things around career choice, um, so choice of surgery or choice of surgical specialty, um, participation, so things like working patterns, um, progression, and also more generally ex individual experience and well-being. Um, we found that um, people um, did recollect that their parenting decisions or experiences had impacted on their career choice. So two in five um, people who responded to our survey thought that um, their experiences had made them less likely to pursue a career in surgery. Over half felt that it had influenced their decision around surgical specialty. I think overall we found um, dissatisfaction with access to a lot of things that can help people who have parenting or caring responsibilities. So things like um, access to less than full-time working or amended working patterns, um, a real consistent lack of information. Um, and I think overall, in terms of the question about what this might mean for retention, 55% um, of people who responded to our survey 
um, said that their experiences around parenting had um, meant that they considered leaving their role in surgery. And we know anecdotally from some of the discussions we have that there are a lot of people who've already done that. Yeah, but Rachel, one of the stats in your report is that you looked at um, less than full-time working. Uh, and it seems that in other specialties, uh, other than surgery, there had been some changes. But surgery remained static at about 7% of people working less than full-time in, in surgical training posts. Yeah, so I think in terms of the, the numbers, it's sort of plateaued in surgery. So yeah, we've seen an increase in, in other specialties, but less so in surgery. Um, some of the um, initial work that the Royal College of Surgeons of England, who commissioned this um, work did that was published towards the end of last year, um, found that there are a number of challenges around less than full-time training and working within surgery, which were really echoed in um, the work that we did that might help to elucidate some of the reasons why that might be. So we did hear of um, quite a negative culture around less than full-time working. So um, perceptions that people who worked less than full-time were less dedicated or less committed um, to their career. Um, I think also we heard from some of the people we spoke to that because things like, uh, because the surgical training pathway is already quite long, um, there was a kind of concern that actually working less than full time would obviously add to that length concern around people missing out on things like training opportunities, so real kind of practical challenges. And I think just going back to that culture point as well, um, again, a real lack of information about what people can request and what people might be entitled to and how um, organisations can enable and support that. Um, so we heard that conversations offer a bit a bit like how how am I going to fill your slot rather than actually how might an amended working pattern work best for that individual? Okay, we know, and we know it's not just a problem in surgery. Your report is focused on surgery and very helpfully um, has data and very useful insights. The ultimate impact, of course, on any change in workforce practice and behaviour is on patients. And I'm going to turn to Sarah Sweeney now, Sarah. Uh, what do patients feel? I'm asking you to represent patients, uh, everybody. Uh, feel about the way the NHS treats its workforce? Um, I can't speak on behalf of all patients, but I can give some <laughs> insights um, from our members. Really concerning statistic that you shared there, around 50, 55% of people consider leaving, because of course that would have a huge impact on patients on the ground. Um, so National Voices and our members, every year we do a, a survey to find out what the kind of biggest issues and burning problems of the day are. And this year was the first year that we've had workforce being one of the top rated issues within that, which is really non-traditional for a coalition of patient charities within that. So I think there's a, a clue there, which is that it reaches now the point where the experience of the workforce really does bleed through and affect the experience of patients. So I think we're at a really critical point now where we need to have some really credible solutions to improve things. I think at uh, this point around people with parental and caring responsibilities, we would strongly argue uh, that it's really important for that lived experience to be existent in the workforce. I think uh, if people are designing and delivering services with those lived experiences, they're going to better cater to the needs of people who have parental and caring responsibilities. And I think that's super important to begin with. Um, I think in conversations we have around the workforce at the moment, I hear a lot of sympathy uh, from patient charities uh, that we that we work with. I think they can see some of the big issues there. And I think tangibly that does come through to the experience of patients. We hear about uh, material deterioration and access to an experience of health and care. Um, and I think 
it's important to say that there's no one individual to blame, that there's some systemic failures there. Um, and so for us, um, as a coalition of patient charities, it's really important to see this resolved. We hear about it in very practical terms. So, for example, I hear about the really significant uh, waiting lists for endoscopies for people with Crohn's. Um, and of course, that has a really big impact on that individual's life. One of our members, Parkinson's UK, they're running a campaign at the moment called We Can't Wait. Um, and really, they're really concerned about access, for example, to speech therapy. And we hear really tangible examples all the time about the ways that the issues facing the workforce impact upon continuity of care and the quality <laughs> of care. We hear very tangible examples about the way that maybe the workforce and the NHS itself has been designed, doesn't always best respond to people's physical and mental health needs. Um, and we hear also about um, huge geographic inequalities uh, for workforce and what that means for people in particular parts of the country. And of course, around social care shortages leading to a breakdown in uh, the support available to carers and then often for breakdowns for carers themselves. So for me, it feels really important that we find um, sustainable solutions for the workforce that match the needs of the existing workforce the future needs of patients and for me it sounds like flexible working is, is one of the keys to that so that sounds like a good thing I'm not an expert on flexible working or on workforce strategies but um, I do think it's very important uh, that, that that's paid attention to because we can tangibly feel it in our conversations we have with hundreds of patient charities and that they're having uh, with people that they work with and support. Good. I mean, I'm, it's good that there's that understanding. And of course, uh, we'll come back to solutions, but it's not an easy fix in the health service to move from where we are today to move from to move to flexible working, as we've as been, been talking about. But one of the, the shifts we have seen is um, it's a generational shift and societal shift in the sense that younger people, I mean, are less tolerant of the of working practice. I mean, the kind of hours that I worked, I guess many people here worked, and the rigid uh, way that we worked on the rotors and uh, in hospitals uh, in particular. I mean, Frazana, what's your experience from primary care? So I think I can come at this from so many angles as a, as a mum who's got a 19 and a 20 year old but um, had a very good experience of bringing them up because of the flexibility I had at my practice. Also as a GP employer, um, um, employing actually at the moment I have an all female workforce in my practice um, and also as the mother of a medical student who's a first year and he already wants to do a three day week and that has nothing to do with childcare, like your first year. Uh, but, but you know I think that there are differences in perceptions um, so I think so. What, what Rachel was saying um, really hit me. I think a lot of this is culture, um, and I think one of the things to remember as we come up to International Women's Day is uh, childcare is not just a woman's issue. So um, I suppose my other uh, role, apart from being a GP, is I was married to a surgeon for 25 years, and the number of events I used to go to where everyone said, oh, so you chose to be a GP so you could look after the family. Um, no, I chose to be a GP because I wanted to be a GP. Um, and what was really interesting is um, when I did get divorced 18 months ago, operationally, my life didn't change. It's only when it occurred to me that operationally I've been doing all the parenting. And I think that's something just, you know, I giggle about it, but it's something to think about when we think about careers because it's not just the person working, the impact on their families. So um, I think it's great that we're talking about this. I think most of it, is culture and I, I, I've already heard a lot about from our politicians as well about oh, feminization of the workforce and it's the snowflake generation. 
I think it's a real step forward, actually. I think um, because there was less concern about childcare, perhaps we didn't value people and their other roles. Um, certainly for me, the when I became a parent, I think I became a much better GP. When I was doing paediatric training, I used to look at all the mums that brought in kids who'd had little scolds from their hot cup of tea. So I was like, what sort of parent is that? When it happened to me, I realised how, how easy it is to do. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think culture is something we, we, we're all coming back to, and perhaps we'll discuss that in the wider conversation. But in terms of primary care, what are the specific shifts you're seeing in primary care? So in primary care, obviously, as you say, Rachel, that the, there is a lot more flexibility. Um, and, and I think it's, um, it is it is a career. I mean, I'm a big fan of, obviously, primary care. There is a lot of flexibility. So uh, I've got a lot of young mums who actually want to do evening sessions. You know, they want to put the kids to bed and then they want to do that four hours. That works really well for them. Then um, that works really well for, you know, our contracts with enhanced access being um, mandatory now. A lot of young mums want to do weekends. And then there's just the little changes we can make. So we're small, agile organisations. So as an employer, I had um, a salaried GP who, one, her, her little one went to nursery. She just needed to be back home at 5.30 to pick up little one. Um, generally, our surgeries finish at 6.30. But I was able to make that change for her. And it, she actually said, I would have left you if I couldn't have had that and I wouldn't be working. So there's a lot of um, you know small changes that can be made. But I'd like to see more at scale as well. And like Sarah says, more more, um, more of that happening nationally. Yeah, I mean, the, the issue of childcare, I mean, you, it's in your report as well, Rachel, which is that you know, dropping kids off at nursery, picking them up, I mean, a medical career or a surgical career doesn't really lend itself to, the, to everybody else's working times. I'm going to come to Thea next. From an employer's perspective, how... What are you noticing um, in the well, way... Everything that everybody's <laughs> talked about. Yeah. And it's the most important... I would say it's the most important thing we're doing at the moment is, besides all the rest of the health and well-being, is being able to offer flexible employment. And um, the figure that you talked about, 55%, mentioning work-life balance, we encourage people to have what we call itchy feet conversations. So you're thinking about leaving us, we say, come and have a conversation with us first. And one of the things that comes up from... Everybody's doctors, nurses, physios, OTs, admin, managers is usually work-life balance. It's not just Gen Z or Gen X, it's all Gens, but it's definitely Gen Z and Gen X and it's work-life balance. And what we can do to help people stay, and it can be that hour that you described, it can be different ways in which we put that flex together is what makes people stay with us. So we will do as much as we can to break the mythology that it is impossible to run a shift system if you allow people to be flexible. It's not. It's hard. It's really hard, but it's not impossible. So working with managers to help them and buddy them up with managers who know how to run and how to do a flexible shift system, how to work with a team. If you think of something like health visiting, health visiting is 97% female. Nearly all of them in my organization will be relatively young and will have children. They all want that flex. So what do you do? We well, have to work collaboratively with your service and you have to think, well, how are we going to manage that fairly? We can't have everybody go at 3.30. People still have children they need, you know, at 5.30, 6 o'clock, Friday afternoon. You can do it, but you have to be very open. You have to work collaboratively. You have to have a culture. Role models help. 
One of my directors is a job share director. So my HR director is two women who job share that role, who both have young children. We have doctors who job share a role, who are both women who have young children. <coughs> there are role models are incredibly important. And it's also very important, final point in the way you recruit. Go out very obviously and upfront. We welcome flexible working. That's what we want and that's what we'll encourage. Is this something that you're particularly strong on or are you noticing other trusts also uh, behaving the way that you are? Um, we are strong on it. We're very um, uh, keen to be clear about it, but everybody's looking at this because it's it's the thing that will retain and grow the workforce. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about solutions. Rachel, first, I mean, are, what are the examples that you're seeing? What can we learn from other industries uh, as well and, and bring back to healthcare to try to uh, enable flexible working? Yeah, so absolutely. We heard, um, as I mentioned earlier, of some really positive examples um, from the people we spoke to. So exactly things like that, where they'd had a conversation with their employer and they were able to work something out, out that worked for them. We heard of a few examples of, of job shares in surgery, but um, a recognition that that can be challenging because of kind of needing to match, particularly in training, the training um, needs not impossible at all but people feeling like they almost had to sort it out themselves and um, kind of navigate that process I think more proactive support from employers to sort of think through what those options would would be really valuable um, absolutely I would echo the point about role models we also heard about um, programs that sort of support people returning to work after a time away so um, returning from um, maternity leave for example there's there's program um, run by Health Education England, which which does provide um, some of those kind of supported return to work um, things, which I think are, are really valuable and, and were echoed in, in the research that we did. We Because we heard a lot about um, that kind of confidence fade, not just skills fade from being t from having time away, but actually really needing to support people feel confident coming back to work and how to kind of do that most effectively. I think it's really important that those support offers are really tailored to individuals and really tailored to specialties. So, um, you know, making sure that actually it's reflective of what that individual person needs and how their experience might be affected by having that time away. Um, I mean, overall, in terms of the the things or the top three things that people in our survey mentioned they wanted or that they thought would improve the experience of people with parental caring responsibilities is more flexible working patterns, um, more uh, flexible training pathways and a better culture. And I think those are all three very, very broad things, but I think actually they also feed into each other. So I think having a greater acceptability, encouragement, of some of those um, flexible working options would be really helpful to improve that culture. I mentioned there are a lot of initiatives, things like less than full-time training. People need to know what their options are. They need to know what they can ask for, who to go to for support if they don't get it or they don't feel like they're being supported. Um, and I think a culture like Thea described that actually sees this as um, really beneficial for the workforce rather than something that's challenging. I think at the moment people who um, and we definitely heard this in our work. People feel um, that if they ask for something um, like an amended working pattern during pregnancy, for example, there's a worry that they're being perceived as as weak, unable to do their job. And I think that's 
just really shocking. We shouldn't have a situation where people aren't asking for things that actually they are entitled to ask for. Um, so I think that, yeah, all of those things are, are really, really key. Okay, great. Sarah, do you know of other examples where that could be brought back to the health service? Mm. Or do you see good examples within the health service? I think for me, it's, um, I think, looking at the big picture and just the role of the NHS as an anchor institution and as one of the biggest employers in the UK. There's something about if we can't get flexible working right there, then where can we get it right? And there's plenty of examples, I think, from the private sector and from the voluntary sector as well um, that can be picked up from there. I think for me as well, there's something around um, where I've seen conversations where the workforce voice and patient voice are heard really well about really quickly translating what's needed from patients into what's needed from the workforce where that comes together um, really closely. Um, and I think for me, it's also about just the support and enablers in, in place around individuals, looking at the bigger workforce issues and challenges beyond, I think, flexible working as well. Then some of the things that we hear is that um, where there's um, really good support for healthcare professionals to understand like the assets available in local communities, and that makes a really big difference in health with prevention, which decreases demands on workforce as well. So on the flexible working front, I'm not the expert in that, but um, yeah, looking at the bigger picture, it, it seems to make a lot of sense. Good. Rosanna, tell us about primary care. I mean, are there other examples you know from primary care? You know, I think primary care, I'd like to think, has, has been a, a, a quite ahead in this. Um, but I think it, it's really important and it's great that we're acknowledging this because, um, you know, I'm sure Sarah will agree that the reason this is important is not just for the, the, the person working, but actually if people are even afraid to say I need an amendment or a change in my work pattern because I'm pregnant and they don't feel safe to ask that, that's going to have a direct negative impact on patient care. So it's great that we're thinking about this because I think in the past sometimes it's been thought of as a, a, a nice to and, and, and have on. Um, I mean, primary care is ahead, but if you look again, uh, Cameron, if you look at GP partners, very few of them are female compared to the salaried workforce. If you look at GP leaders, there aren't that many women that you see in leadership positions. And um, uh, my experience as a mum has been it doesn't matter if you do it a bit later than your male counterparts because actually you've probably spent two decades raising your children. So those are the conversations that I think we need to have. It's more than just the hours and more than, and, you know, having been married to a surgeon, the, sur the surgical mantra from what I understand is, oh, if we do less than full-time training, they won't get their training done. But it's not a race. They won't get their training done compared to who? He became a consultant before 40. It doesn't matter if a female counterpart becomes a consultant a little bit later so uh, I think role modeling and culture and thinking about what is good for you you do you I'll do me and, and I think that's just something that we really need to embrace primary care I think is doing really well actually particularly with the different of uh, the variety of roles that we have from weekend working to urgent care working to um, you know GP um, specialist to so, so there's a lot of variety and I think that helps women uh, and men who want to um, you know look after children have that flexibility but this point about doing doing it later I mean in your you're positive about it that's, that's really excellent I mean in your report Rachel the, the sense I got though that it was a problem for the some of the people that you spoke with that they were having to postpone uh, either child bringing up children or, um, or or their career because of the it was difficult to do both at the same time 
So I think this was an issue where actually we heard both sides. And I think that's really reflective of, of the point around actually it's about what works for individuals. So we heard from some people who um, work were, were training less than full time and it was really working for them. They didn't mind that their training pathway was going to be a bit longer. The balance worked really well um, and they were really positive about it. Um, we also heard from people who were very frustrated that they um, felt like they couldn't do that within surgery. They felt pressure to get those opportunities um, to keep up with other people. We heard people who were actually almost working, describing it as kind of overcompensating because they felt like I'm not going to get that um, pace of um, sort of training that other that peers are going to have. So I think that it's actually quite diverse in terms of people's preferences. We also heard um, people in our survey talking about their experiences around parenting influencing their ability to take up additional things such as leadership roles or additional research, things that are sort of perceived as being really key to actually people being able to develop their career. But actually those opportunities aren't necessarily being made available to people in a flexible, accessible way. So I think it's it's not just talking about training, it's actually about those other opportunities as well and, and what um, the impact of that has on people's ability to progress their career as well. Okay, great, thank you. Uh, Thea, finally, uh, other examples of, of good practice solutions that you've seen work or, or possibly seen work in other industries that we might bring back to the NHS? Yeah, I think one of the things I wanted to talk about was disability and long-term conditions because we've talked a lot about the issues of um, parenting and caring, um, but the NHS is a poor employer of people with um, disabilities, both mental health and physical disabilities. We're a poor employer of people with long-term conditions, which mm. is appalling, mm. absolutely appalling. Mm. And so one of the areas as well, which we can utilize flexibility in the way in which we employ people is in that area. And it's great, it picks up your point about lived experience. So if you're reaching out very proactively and saying, we welcome people with a disability to come and work with us in all of, the, all of our roles, that's good for your service it's good for you, for the diversity that you've got and it's also it is going to be about flexible working and suitable um, adjustments there those things are, are, are really important ultimately it's about being open and not making it a matter of confidence of the individual to come forward but to be you asking you seeking out what can I do to help you what can I do to support you in this role because we we welcome what you what you can do for us and I think you see that across all industries. It's the culture you create that make it a positive and welcome choice. I'm hearing a lot of positivity about you know wanting to do this and it's, that it's not impossible, but there are cultural and structural uh, barriers. So let's open the, the conversation up. Martin Marshall, Chair of the Trust. I, I just want to... Um, puncture that positivity a little bit because it's a really progressive conversation and an exciting and important conversation but there are unintended consequences to working less than full time and I'm particularly interested from, from the patient perspective the impact of that on, on the trust that patients have in their clinicians so we know trust is fundamentally important and we know from the evidence that some of the elements of that trust are the perception that the doctor is there for you that they're willing to go the extra mile that they're selfless and I'm just wondering how one manages the perceptions of patients that doctors no longer are willing to do that. And indeed, we hear that a lot in, in general practice. My doctor isn't there anymore. They're only there three days a week, even though three days a week is 42 hours. Um, and I think it, it, it has an impact 
not only in our ability to provide care, but also on the influence that doctors have within society and on the wider system as well. And I just I wonder what thought there's been to the unintended consequences of this. Yeah, good. Um, would you like to just respond to that? Yeah, happy Sarah? to, happy to. And then we'll get, we'll get more questions. Yeah. Um, you're not wrong, Martin. There's, a, I think, continuity of care. Trust are really <clears throat> important um, to patients. Um, I find it really interesting the different perspectives we heard there around uh, choice and, for example, people delaying training and, and these different things. And I think there's something about just recognising um, and putting choices in front of people and individuals and patients. Like, for example, I'd heard about um, a GP practice uh, where people were being offered either the opportunity to uh, see a, a clinician, any clinician on the day or told you can wait to see the person that you'd like to see and they'll be available at this time. So I think um, treating people as adults, being clear about what is possible, what's not possible. Um, there's something about how I think the general public are more than aware. I don't think anyone isn't about the pressures on the NHS. I think that the general public are aware of these societal shifts where we have to have I think more inclusive employment practices that work for people with parental responsibilities, caring responsibilities, disabilities. So it's about how we have that conversation societally about that. Um, I don't think any one individual should have to pay the price for that. I hear some really shocking things from, um, I've heard a lot particularly from general practice uh, of, of people going through burnout and there's something about how we model what good health looks like in the workplace and I mean the number one modeler of that should be in the NHS and within social care and for us in the voluntary sector too. So. Um, there's tensions there. It's not straightforward, but um, I think that's a conversation we need to have more openly with, with people in society. Okay. Can we just stick to this less than full-time working point for a minute? Uh, if you, would you like to comment on that? Uh, thank you. It's a great conversation, a really good report. I'm Simon Gregory. I am a GP. I'm uh, Health Education England's Medical Director for Primary Care, soon to be the NHS England Workforce Training Education Directorate. The, the less than full-time carer responsibility isn't only about children. We have squeezed generations now. We have um, often trainees, and it still falls on 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 the women. Uh, it's not only childcare responsibility that falls uh, predominantly on women. Mm. So we've got to look at all care responsibilities. We've increased GP training numbers in England to four thousand a year. Largely, we've done that by increasing flexibility whilst maintaining standards, but also by listening, because what we heard is we want flexibility. We had a backlash from older members of the profession saying, you're failing because you're not producing enough full-time GPs, that's what we need. But what we hear from the youngers is, well, if you don't offer that, we'll walk. So what's better? A valued colleague that's working the time they want to work and can work, or nobody? And I think that's where we, we struggle. But we do offer less than full-time training to all GP trainees. The problem is often they don't believe it because their near peers are telling them it's not available. So maybe the information's still got to get out there. Mm -hmm. And I think professions like surgery are still a way behind. But finally, you said stick to less than full-time training. General practice is great for less than full-time. It's not great for those with health conditions or long-term disabilities. There are GPs with long COVID who are now out of work because the model that works well for less than full-time works less than well for other things. So we've got to improve how we value and support diversity across all characteristics. Okay, I mean, just while you're there, I mean, what, what are you hearing from patients, though, about the shift in working patterns? Well, it's an interesting one because my, my practice um, is almost entirely less than full-time because actually less than full-time in general practice, half-time partner in my practice works 48 hours a week. There's no such thing as less than full-time, really, and that's part of the problem is that we think a working week is 37 and a half hours. 
But if you work around it, if you look at even the work of people like Dennis Piero Gray, where they've looked at continuity of care, but that doesn't mean somebody working 168 hours a week. It, it's actually about how you factor it in uh, and, and where you factor it in. What, I, what we hear from our patients is if they need somebody in an emergency, they're happy for anyone in the practice they trust because they know they trust the practice. It's when they've got a long-term condition or something going on in their life that they want the person that knows them and they know. And it is possible still to juggle that. It's harder with the workforce on its knees. It is harder, but I think also we can try and use some of the technology to do that. Mm. You know, I had a recent experience of contacting a practice for a review and being offered a face-to-face -face appointment saying, I don't want it. I haven't got the time for that and I don't need it. Oh, but we've got targets now. <laughs> yeah, you might have, but I want to have a telephone consultation, please. So I think you actually need to, uh, we need to understand what our patients want and need and what our colleagues want and need but they're not mutually incompatible yeah so what you're saying it, it is possible to we know the evidence behind continuity of care to deliver that but at the same time offer flexible working yeah. victoria georgia brown um icb research and innovation lead in northeast london and uh, vice chair for the rctp um, so on this point regarding continuity of care and how can we uh, deliver it when actually a lot of our um, uh, GPs are working part-time, there are actually examples across the country uh, of different ways of doing this. And one is micro-teams, um, which we have implemented in, uh, in uh, North East London, but also, as I said, in different other parts of the country. So it can be can done. Can you explain what that is? So uh, it's um, uh, groups, two or three GPs working together, sharing the same kind of population list um, and therefore it allows you to get to know the patients the patients um, trust develop trusting relationships with you and it can work Claire final word from you on this and then perhaps you're going to move us on anyway Claire Gerard president of the Royal College of GPs <laughs> we have to be flexible when my senior partner retired 12 years ago I predicted for his replacement we needed 2.2 replacements for him he was male worked nine sessions a week before general practice became unworkable and we could see the writing on the wall and of course we haven't had 2.2 replacement we've had flat line replacement in general practice so you've got to have the workforce to be flexible that's the first thing the second thing is sacrifice uh i have only just dropped down to having half a day off a week uh which i'm now on a monday morning and I never picked up my children from nursery. I never went to the nativity plays. I never, I did put patients uh, and my practice first. And and I was consumed with guilt the whole time. And I say to the young ones now, guilt is something you feel when you love somebody. So, but I don't want that to happen to the next generation. I think that, you know, I've made it to the top. I've done this, I've done that. But, and you can't have regret, but... I do, I can't wait for my children to have grandchildren so that I can repay and, re, and, and start those things that, that I never went. And the whole system wasn't designed for working mothers. So the nativity play was at 9.30 in the morning. Had it been, or the, the assembly, you know, those silly little assemblies you go to. Had it been at 8 a.m. in the morning, I could have gone. The, the, the bits were in the afternoon, even the meeting the teachers you had to do at 3.30 in the afternoon. So the whole system, now I think the system needs to change in order to accommodate us. And finally, Zygmunt Bauman, who was a great uh, sociologist in the 1970s, talked about liquid modernity, that people want much more liquid lives. And yet 
we continue to think that they want solid lives and, and concretized lives. And, and general practice is blamed. Even yesterday, you know, why are we not available? Because we're bloody women. And whatever you, you do, who wipes the bottom of the child? Who takes a day off when the washing machine's broken down? We do, even though we've got enlightened men, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and we've got liquid modernity. Right, okay. Um, we're getting into culture. Let's. Uh, who'd like to raise another theme or issue? Kieran. Oh, hi, Cameron. I'm Kieran Patel. So I'm Chief Medical Officer and Deputy CEO at University Hospitals Coventry in Warwickshire. I think I just want to push the concept of embracing the diversity of what people need because it is very varied and we mustn't put everybody into the same box. Um, and I'm just going to go head into some solution-focused setting. So one of the advantages of the NHS is the scale it offers. So we can embrace the complexity of operational planning if we embrace the fact that we need to plan better. And too often we get into impulsive planning rather than saying actually I've got 12,500 staff, I've got to deliver you know, a million outpatient appointments here. But I can plan that in advance and then you can slot people into what they want to do. So it, it is possible to do that. And the second concept is innovation when we talk about agility and flexibility. So too often we talk about agility in a time frame. Actually, for me, agility is about looking at the potential for agile portfolios. So with integrated care systems, we have the ability for people to work across sectors. You know, and we've got GPs who do general practice and enology, and vice versa consultants who will go out into primary care. So there is the art of the possible now if we're willing to embrace it. And the other concept in terms of agility is embracing the need to be really compassionate. And when I've talked to our international medical graduates, they want blocks of time off to go back home to get mm -hmm. the pastoral support that we just cannot offer here. So I've started saying to our international graduates, actually, if you want a six-week block of leave off, let's talk about how we can make that happen because we cannot substitute for that. So we've got to be much more fleet of foot in terms of how we think about agility and generate the ability for concepts such as sabbaticals for people to go off to recharge and avoid burnout. We've just had somebody go off and do a three-month expedition into the North Pole. <laughs> Actually, we've done that because it's worked bloody hard for 10 years, um, but we've made it happen. So I think we must embrace the ability of scale and cross-sectoral working if we're going to solve this. Would anybody like to pick up on that? You, Theo. Uh, uh, sorry, because I shouldn't really allow other people to come no, in, but no, I just really wanted to um, yeah. follow up on that point because I think that compassionate and that individualistic approach, what I found in the organisation is that people will sometimes come back and go, oh, but if you've done that for them, you're going to need to let everybody go to the North Pole for three months. <laughs> and, of course, that's not the case. Um, but there is a tremendous fear that if you set the precedent, and I say if we set the precedent of compassion, of kindness, of individualistic care, that will be okay. We will be fine. Everybody won't want to go to the North Pole for three months. <laughs> but there is a tremendous fear, and I'm sure most of us have heard, but if you set that precedent, what will happen? Um, and my experience is it doesn't happen. It's okay. Okay, uh, back to the panel. Rachel. Yeah, I, I mean... It's... You've got 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a fantastic conversation. I think that the point just made, or that's been made throughout around actually having inclusive, compassionate 
employment practices and policies is really key. This is not just about parenting or caring. We had uh, one in seven people who responded to our survey also said that they provided support to someone because of old age or disability. Um, we heard from people who were caring for children with disabilities. This is a huge, huge issue which has implications for um, lots of people. I think that this idea of shifting the conversation um, to actually what what's beneficial for people um, and this this fear that um, was mentioned about setting precedent, that was something we heard also from a generational point of view. So people saying that, you know, my senior colleagues are sort of very anti-enabling this because it wasn't available for them. So actually, why should it be available for you? I think we really need to shift that conversation to actually say it's not just about what people want now, it's actually about um, what does the workforce of the future want as well and how do we kind of enable thinking about that in our long-term sort of plans for the workforce. And I think also this point about compassion is really key. I think continuity is also obviously important, but I think at the same time, I think patients, I'm seeing patients having compassion for the workforce and actually the workforce being able to operate in a way where they are valued, they are supported. And I think that's also really important for patient care. I don't think continuity is necessarily the opposite of flexible working. Actually, I think they can exist in harmony and we need to kind of enable that. Okay, thanks. Sarah? I think this conversation comes at a time when the workforce is facing a particular crisis. I think there was a good argument made yesterday that we should be in a situation where there's an oversupply and therefore yeah. things like flex seem a lot easier and uh, it doesn't feel so down to the nitty gritty of how do we get this person for this hour. So there's something about that. I think there's something, and I think uh, Sylvia highlighted it really well around where are we going to be in the future? We're going to have a much greater kind of demographic of older people, which means that collectively as a society, we're going to have to um, make sure that we're supporting and caring for people. And I think we need to recognise that. We need to respond to that. Um, and ultimately, I think that what, what the workforce doesn't pick up um, either gets worse um, or gets picked up by people, communities, carers, the voluntary sector. So just really keen for there to be really sustainable solutions for this and just really glad that the conversation's happening. Thank you. Rosanna. Um, so I think my final thoughts are this is an essential thing to do. It's not a nice to have um, because um, flexible workforce or no workforce is where we are at the moment. So um, and I, I, as you've already said, it th this is absolutely linked to patient safety. So this is really important. Again, it's not a nice to have. Um, I think... Um, like Nigel was saying yesterday, small steps. So um, it, it's great that obviously, you know, HE, XHE, whatever they're called now, um, you know, ha, ha, can't keep up, but, but you know, ha, ha, have all, all that. It, it has to be embedded in, in everyday practice, that, that culture as well. So small things. I mean, one thing we didn't talk about is that actually children under five get sick quite a bit. That's what they do. They're all bringing a virus home. What do we do for that? You know, is it so I was fortunate as a, as a, a an employer in a small practice, you know, I have the ability to let my sorry doctors bring their little ones in when that happens. Obviously, I'm not suggesting that people go into the operating theatre with their two year old. But but, you know, what have we? Because the, these are not things that we can't predict. If you've got an under five year old, you're going to have to take care as leave or do something. So so these are these are things we can mitigate against. And um, we need to do it and we need to do it quickly. Thank you. We can't afford not to do this for very clear reasons that we won't have a workforce if we don't do it. But I think also we should look at it as a really exciting opportunity. People are offering us a new way of inventing work. 
We've done that during COVID with Microsoft Teams and with different ways we work. We're doing it now with a generation in two places who are demanding of us a better work-life balance. I think we should see us as an exciting time and embrace all that complexity and try and work it out. Well, great. <laughs> great. Well, we've heard a lot of um, you know, can-do attitudes. We may be an unrepresentative sample uh, gathered in this room. Um, I mean, it's clearly something, an, an ambition, something we should all aim for, hard to achieve, but I think uh, because that requires deep cultural change, but it, then that means there's a whole leadership approach to achieving that culture change to deliver uh, the kind of workforce and the working conditions that will deliver the best patient care. So thank you all very much. We're grateful to the Nuffield Trust for hosting this for us. And thank you, Rachel Hutchings, um, Sarah Sweeney, Frazana Hussein and Thea Stein. Thank you all much. That's it for this podcast. So to make sure you don't miss out on anything, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I'm Cameron Abassi. Thanks for listening.